This is Euroscopic, your weekly roundup of what happened, what's happening, and what might happen in and to Europe. In partnership with EU Observer, we bring you insights and reporting from their people on the ground across the European Union and beyond. I'm William Flucroft, a journalist based in Berlin and writer of the Germany Substack newsletter called The Schlans. And I am Martin Gag, the author of Inconclusive Thoughts, also at Substack. We're recording on Wednesday, February 28th, so events may have changed by the time you hear this podcast, wherever your ears go for podcasts. We're going to be discussing this week new Michigas over anti-Semitism. Farmer protests get more and more fierce. Sweden finally gets into NATO. We have a big story of France's latest comments or Emmanuel Macron's latest comments regarding support for Ukraine. And we have two great interviews coming up, one with Mikhail Komin. He's a visiting fellow for the European Center of Foreign Relations, a Russian himself and an expert on Russian politics. And Karin Darigo, she is the would-be Spitzen candidate for Mira 25. I talked to her just last night uh, at an event for her party is collecting signatures to get on the ballot for European elections later this year. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, William. I just heard your I heard your Bialetti percolating there in the background just a few minutes ago, so that's a good sign. Indeed, my Bialetti has finished percolating, and now uh, I'm sitting here with a large cup of uh, very black coffee. Likewise, uh, over here. So, only way to start um, a Wednesday in which we are recording, usually late in the week, um, but here we are. Yeah, it's been well. It's been quite a week. We we we. Um... News developed, which which shifted our plans, and you know you got to roll with the punches. But anyway, here we are. So, what are the big stories that uh, you have that have caught your attention this week? Well, I think it can't be ignored, even though it's a bit of an older story by this point. But it came out really right after we finished our last week's episode, so it's worth a mention about Fabrice Legere, um French politician, a former head of Frontex, the European Union's border force, border guard. Uh, announcing his intention to run with the far right in French politics um, in the European elections, which to me is such a stark admission of how anti-migrant the European Union is. Frontex has come under massive criticism for pushbacks, for dirty deals with uh, third countries just on the edge of the European Union external border, uh, really not being very great to upholding international law, humanitarian law, and the EU's own values when it comes to refugees and migrants. And then Frontex has, of course, always pushed back on that. Uh, and now we have the former head of Frontex uh, very unabashedly joining the far right in his uh, future political uh, desires. This coming on the same day that uh, just a couple hours from now, maybe we'll talk about it next week, uh, that there's going to be a report coming out about Frontex's actions uh, in specifically the Mediterranean. Um, I think it's sort of important to say that obviously the fact that Legetti's uh, political intuitions might lay far to the right uh, of the European political spectrum, although one would argue that increasingly that is where the European political consensus finds itself. Um, it does not mean, of course, that he implemented uh, you know, either a policy of xenophobia or a policy of 
uh, you know, violence, but does bring questions um, about the political culture of the institution, particularly in light of all the criticism that has been leveled against uh, the, the organization. Um, in any case, um, the story that I'm uh, following this week is actually uh, the first of two stories of anti-Semitism on which we will touch this week, which is that so-called anti-Semitism. So-called anti-Semitism. I think it's important to point out. Uh, so this one is actually, I think that we can go further than that and says, say that this is actually the first one of two fake anti-Semitism stories. The French government uh, has found or insists uh, that the FSB, Russian Secret Service, is responsible for a set of graffitis of Jewish stars, stars of David, uh, that were found in buildings where Jews uh, presumably live around uh, different parts of Paris last year as the, as the war um, in Gaza or the bombing of Gaza uh, began to take place. So obviously uh, this would be uh, a way the accusation here is that the Russian FSB was actually sowing uh, essentially social tension between the very large Muslim community in the often repeated um, siege Jewish community of France. That's um, a story that is bound to um, have an effect on the way that the French discourse, particularly around the government, um, focuses on uh, Russia. Uh, we are coming back to this topic today, right? Um, how the French are talking about Russia and are talking about the war in Ukraine. So this is one more argument or this one more charge being leveled. Right. Well, it's just amazing how how wide open Western societies are leaving themselves, how vulnerable they're making them th themselves to the potential of Russian misinformation, disinformation, and meddling in their societies at a time that everyone's warning against uh, the involvement of, of, of Russian secret services uh, in the Western political systems, especially as we go into the European elections. There's been major warnings about that. Uh, the European Parliament seems to be on high alert. And yet, um, due to these hypersensitivities around anti-Semitism, especially in France and Germany, uh, it really it really is a, a shoe-in or an easy-in for potential Russian forces to make problems in society, social tension, and which, of course, benefit the far right, right? Because it sows Islamophobia and xenophobia. They're kind of two most famous uh, and helpful calling cards. And over in Germany, of course, no stranger to seeing anti-Semitism everywhere, uh, mostly made up in the heads of German officials or used as a way to, uh, you know, express their own Islamophobia or xenophobia. We we just wrapped up the, the Berlinale, the Berlin Film Festival uh, in Berlin. Uh, always a, a site, you know, like most cultural, huge cultural institutions, cultural events, always a place uh, that also often stirs some controversy or headlines. Uh, the Berlinale already got into hot water about whether it was, was or was not going to invite elected uh, members of Berlin State Parliament from the AfD, the far-right party here. They ended up disinviting them after inviting them due to pressure. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're also under pressure uh, by people who uh, essentially align with the far-right on their anti-Muslim and Islamophobic and xenophobic views when it comes vis-a-vis -vis through the war in, uh, of, in Gaza that Israel is perpetrating. And we saw that um, in the, in the most acutely in the acceptance speech of two documentary uh, filmmakers, 
uh, Yuval Abraham and uh, Masfar Yatta. This is an Israeli, a Jewish-Israeli-Palestinian-Muslim pair, filmmaking pair, that won this documentary about, uh, broadly speaking, about the occupation. And in their, their speech, in their acceptance speech, they used it to call out the occupation. They used the A word, the G word, apartheid and genocide, that are words you're not allowed to use, not supposed to use in polite company in Germany. Uh, and that caused quite a stir. You had headlines all over German media and European media um, with statements from German officials and Berlin state officials calling this anti-Semitic. Uh, again, completely blurring the line between Israel criticism and and actual hatred of Jews. You know, I saw lots of headlines where literally one, you know, you would click a link that would talk up that would that would mention anti-Israel criticism. You click the link, and the headline then swaps out anti-Israel for anti-Semitic. Um, so this is kind of the, the the state of play in Germany right now. And then the cultural officials here in Germany uh, really stepped in it when they tried to parse this line or, or 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 split hairs where they were actually applauding Yuval, the the Jewish Israeli um, uh, documentarian, for his you know speech about peace and living together, etc. Uh, but they weren't applauding the Palestinian who was on stage with him, his friend, his colleague, uh, what this whole film was about. Uh, so it's just this bizarre effort for in, in this ongoing anti-anti-Semitism campaign that we're seeing in Germany, which is really all about Germans and German officials reassuring themselves that they themselves have gotten past their own history at the expense not only of Muslims and Palestinians and Arabs, uh, but of Jews themselves, because you have Jews under attack for being called anti-Semitic, and with really real consequences. Yuval Abraham uh, just tweeted uh, yesterday about how his life is now in danger because he's been accused of being an anti-Semite, and he now has right-wing Jewish extremists at his door uh, threatening his life and the life of his family. So very real consequences for for some of the the strange policies that German officials, many German officials, are are carrying out right now. So other two uh, other two stories left to mention. One is uh, the fact that the farmers' protest, which has now just uh, been visited upon Brussels, uh, essentially turned into a bit of a war zone, didn't it? Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Um, this was as I believe agricultural ministers, EU agricultural ministers, were meeting to discuss, you know, um, agricultural policy, subsidies, tax breaks, etc which is what we've been seeing these protests responding to at national level all around uh, the United, the European Union, including most notably Germany, Poland, and France. And the photos are quite strong, right? quite stark. Um, police using water cannon, um, the farmer's favorite tactic of, of spraying them. It's a bit early. I haven't had breakfast yet. It's a bit early, but the liquid manure, delicious. Um, and, and really quite a violent scene outside of Brussels. Yeah, I mean, sure enough. Um, it's also a question as to where this kind of heavy hand does not actually uh, help them to engross their their lines. But in any case, I mean, what we're seeing is quite clearly an escalation of, um, you know, the way in which farmer protests are facing uh, the state and the way the state is facing the farmer the farmer protests, uh, at least in Belgium. Uh, lastly, um, Sweden made it into NATO thanks to uh, Mr. Orban. Uh, back in Budapest, we can we can distract ourselves from all of the uh, the tensions, the domestic tensions uh, that we've just talked about, because we can uh, instead project our unity, our military, 
and foreign policy unity by finally uh, Hungary voting uh, with Orban's blessing to let Sweden into NATO after 649 days. It only took 649 days to get there, something that should have been, or, or at least NATO officials said would be very quick because, at least technically speaking, Finland and Sweden very easily clear the hurdles for applying to NATO. They've been NATO partners for decades. So the uh, the tactics, the equipment, the the training, all of that is already aligned with NATO. So this was very much purely a political problem that was holding up um, the addition of first Finland and then Sweden. The fact that this was actually done first by Turkey and then by Orban, uh, by Hungary, uh, once again goes to show uh, the very uh, unpleasant dynamics of uh, the way that Europe does politics with its partners. Okay, so this week um, there's been quite a bit of talk about um, obviously Russia um, and the Ukrainian war and the effects of the Ukrainian war, particularly on Europe. As we have seen, there is a big development in France. Uh, we will get to that a bit later in the show. Um, but there is also a way in which every time something happens in the Ukrainian front, there is a direct effect on the political makeup uh, of Europe. And one of the issues uh, that uh, a friend uh, at the EU Observer, Mikhail Konin, has been following is the way in which the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has impacted uh, the parliament dynamics and the different alliances and allegiances of parliamentarians in Brussels. Uh, of MEPs uh, to the different parts of the conflict. So right ahead, uh, we uh, we talk with with Michael. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Euroscopic, um, especially last minute. We really appreciate your time. Um, I think a first question I have is. What um, do we, if I may say, so broadly say we in the West, which is a slippery term, but we in the West, what do we not understand about Russian politics? Well, this is a good question. Um, I think that maybe the main part, the main thing that West usually don't understand that um, despite all this full-scale invasion uh, in Ukraine, which... Kremlin started two years ago now, yeah, uh, there are some kind of rationalization inside of the Russian politics, Russian elites, Russian government, and they can struggle with the problems which West and Ukraine would like to uh, push them to, to Russia quite, quite effective, yeah. And uh, we see that from the economical side, I mean, so the sanctions is not working really good and can't crush the Russian economy and ruin the economy. And also we can see it in the international affairs, for example, when West and uh, Ukraine try to persuade uh, the countries from the global south to support the idea uh, of the pro-Ukrainian mood, yeah. But uh, Kremlin works with them too, especially in Africa and in Latin America. And we see that the results is quite quite effective for them. So uh, the world is now in, now in their big um, 
big unity, uh, and uh, especially in the global south for pro-Ukrainian mood. So uh, this is the main misunderstanding, I think, uh, about Russia, which we have now. Is that based on a like on a Western hubris? This idea that you know this kind of default assumption that the world wants to be more like the West and therefore will support the West in its policy goals and its geostrategic interests. Um, or is there something more and deeper going on there? No, I think it's mostly it's based on the wishful thinking. So Western countries, um, the European Union and the United States believe that if they do something um, which they think that will be effective, they uh, <laughs> uh, they try to try to see this effectiveness in every every step that they made. So, but in, in reality. Uh, Reality is quite more complex than they usually think and they usually try to understand. And so now we see the problem um, in the front line with their ammunition uh, in the Ukraine, which uh, West, uh, you know, that uh, they have some problems with their uh, providing to the Ukraine and to the Kiev. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in some other in some other spheres, too. Mikhail. Love to know from a Russian perspective, because we hear it obviously from Western media. You know, why does Russia seem to be standing up, again, economically speaking and militarily speaking, doing a better job in surviving the sanctions and surviving the the isolation better than many Western policymakers would have hoped? Um, why is that sort of, from a Western perspective, disappointing? Well, um, first of all, I think because uh, Russia over the 15 or 10, uh, over the 15 or tw uh, 20 years built um, some kind of allies uh, inside of the Western countries too. Yeah, who now support uh, Kremlin ideas for providing the sanction goods, different goods, yeah, especially which is uh, needed to the military stuff. Um, and uh, they use the corruption, which is okay, of course, existed not only in the authoritarian regimes, but also in the Western countries, yeah, and they try to use it for um, working with uh, uh, their um, really necessity things, which they need to have uh, for better, um, for better, for better military equipment and uh, all other things. Uh, Michael, we just heard that Macron might be considering the, the shipment of Western troops or sending Western troops into Ukraine to fight against Russia. What, what do you make of this and what do you think the consequences will be? Uh, not only on the Russian side, but sort of you've been looking at the European Parliament and the reaction. What do you think the reaction would be there? Well, uh, we see that, uh, okay, what what we we really see now? We see the decline of the support on the pro-Ukrainian moods inside of the uh, European countries. Yeah, so we see it from, uh, for example, the survey which was conducted by the European Council of Foreign Relations and published uh, a few days ago. Yeah, so and uh, I think that Macron, as the the leader of Europe, yeah, who would like to be the leader of Europe, not only the France but the European Union. I mean. So he tried to he tried to uh, push back this um, 
moods, these attitudes, yeah, and try to uh, support and try to persuade all other uh, representatives of the European elites inside of the European parliaments too, to support the idea that we need now uh, to support Ukraine more, yeah, so we haven't any chances to um, give them fail in the front line or something like that. So uh, only the, the, the thing which we can really do, yeah, we can really uh, support uh, and give more ammunition and maybe to send our troops there, um, I mean in Ukraine, and to help Ukrainians to uh, combat with the Russian military machine, which is quite stronger than they. Yeah, but inside of the European Parliament, uh, I think that it will be really problematic thing because of side of some European groups, European politics groups, especially with the far right uh, involvement. Though they think that uh, using the troops um, after uh, that, uh, that providing the military stuff uh, as a ammunition and equipment to Ukraine, yeah, is really a bad idea, and they try to use it to uh, persuade their. Uh, their uh, readers, listeners, and uh, the people in their countries, yeah, who are support for right ideas, uh, to give them more votes in the upcoming June election of the European Parliament. I mean, you have uh, written a couple of things for the EU Observer, and in the latest one, you more or less single out sort of the far right inside the European Parliament as sort of doing a bit of the bidding of the Russian position. But I mean, in Germany, we have the experience of Ivan Schroeder. I mean, the SPD, the socialists, being pretty uh, deeply entwined uh, with, you know, some of the some of the Russian machine. So uh, the problems, yeah, the conflicts between different uh, political parties, uh, not only on the national level, but on the European level, as the European political groups, yeah. Uh, but uh, in, in different in different questions, not only about the Ukraine or Kremlin, um, they are more more or less they are now uh, and especially not now but before before I mean in 2022 they are, have some kind of unity about what Kremlin did. So they vote for the resolution in European Parliament uh, in pro-Ukrainian and anti-Kremlin way. So only really radicals from different parties, uh, um, but small parties, I mean, vote against this resolution on pro-Ukrainian modes, yeah. But uh, also there are some really inner European agenda, which we see the conflicts between these European political groups. And uh, for example, about the green agenda, yeah, or the agricultural issues, which we saw uh, last year, for example, about the migration, of course. So there are some of these mm, strict things. Yeah, and uh, uh, among um, these uh, representatives of the different uh, European uh, political groups, uh, we, with my colleague, observe the uh, party discipline. Yeah, uh, the discipline which uh, provide the people who are uh, involved in the working in the European Parliament, I mean, the member of European Parliament, and they are um, affiliated with two uh, with the two parties, the national parties and the European um, European uh, political group. So how they vote uh, in a, in according to the party line or uh, vote uh, against them. Yeah. And so what we saw, we saw that uh, the people, uh, the member of European parliaments from the 
for example, socialists uh, votes really strictly in the party line. Yeah, uh, maybe this is because of their have more um, conscious uh, about the decision which was made in the pro-European way, or maybe because they are are more uh, have some um, ideas in the line with their real parties and European political groups, so they're less distinctive. Yeah. But uh, we see that the leftist is really uh, wo uh, vote in in many cases, yeah, close to the 100% cases of the final voting uh, in the line of their European political groups and in line in the line of their national party. But when we uh, uh, look into the far right uh, parties in the national level and in the uh, European political groups, we see that in the European political groups. For example, ID and ECR uh, have really uh, not so strict party discipline. Yeah, so usually some representatives of the ID, uh, yeah, they vote against the uh, other, uh, the majority of the of the European politics, uh, European uh, uh, party group. Yeah, and so uh, it demonstrates for us that bodies, yeah, they have some kind of problems with the consensus and it is a good signal for us uh, if we will have the more far right more right maybe right wing parliament after the june election uh, we see that the party discipline can mm, give us a chance i mean us the pro european mm, representatives pro european forces uh, to uh, provide some laws um this accept mm, the support accept the uh, stickling uh, from the far-right forces, far-right uh, parties. Mikhail, I'd like to go back and follow up on the the soldiers, the McClellan's comment about, about, about sending European troops to Ukraine. Now, I understand that a lot of that was posturing. Macron very much had an interest to show that the West is still behind Ukraine and any kind of real action on that idea is a long way off if ever nonetheless from a russian view what would what is the kremlin's or or vladimir putin's um uh reaction to such a a statement either now or as that idea possibly picks up steam well for now we haven't a lot of um, comments from kremlin about this macron's idea because it was happened really <laughs> recently yeah but uh before vladimir putin underlines uh a lot of times that uh the kremlin have some kind of red lines yeah uh which west can't cross and uh, one of these red line uh was the the participation in the conflict in the war uh using the troops the western troops uh, the NATO one or the national one, it doesn't matter. So, uh, but it will be really the big mm, red line for the Kremlin if it is really happening. Um, but uh, you know that, for example, uh, one year and a half ago, uh, yeah. So the red line which Kremlin uh, tried to <laughs> tried to write, <laughs> tried to demonstrate to the West was also about the mm, uh, providing their uh, modern ammunition, yeah, for example, modern tanks for Ukraine or um, modern airplanes, yeah. So uh, 
and uh, these red lines really crossed by uh, by the West without any real problem from the Kremlin. Yeah, so Kremlin doesn't react in any uh, cases for these for these issues. Yeah, so because Kremlin hasn't any resources to do it. Well, uh, Mikhail, uh, thank you very much. We have to leave it at that. Um, really appreciate you visiting us, and we hope to see you again around here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for having me here. So it's nice to talk with you and see you later. Thanks so much to Mikhail Komin for joining us. He's a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations based in Vienna and Riga, as we heard, uh, looking at Russia and Russia's influence in the European Union. You can catch his latest article on EU Observer at euobserver.com. It's a fascinating one. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, and that kind of brings us over to the bigger story that's happened in the last couple of days, which is this sort of effort to re-energize uh, the Western support for Ukraine has been flagging the last several months, I would say, ever since Ukraine's disappointing performance in the counteroffensive. Well, I want to couch that in the the fact that the expectations for the counteroffensive were insanely high and maybe unrealistic. So, Martin, why don't you bring in, um, bring in that aspect? So, yeah, um, most certainly the, the summer offensive, um, which was... There were there was talk of you know Ukraine ending the year uh, in in Crimea and uh, essentially the the tide being completely turned essentially flattered pretty spectacularly it produced not only I think uh, a break in the morale of on the ground I mean although quite clearly Ukrainians remain very committed but it most certainly produced a sense of exhaustion I think among uh, Ukrainian supporters which. Uh, you know, I think in many, many populations facing crisis of their own, uh, Europe most certainly, uh, began to lose interest and patience. Um, and the situation that we find ourselves now is that uh, in Advika, uh, Russians have actually taken back a strategically relevant uh, position right outside the Donbass. Um, and... And what this actually translating into is that in Europe, there is a very serious and very consistent fear that this might be Russia turning the tide and essentially beginning what might be an offensive back on the road to Kiev, which they had more or less abandoned, although there were still intermittent bombings and intermittent, uh, you know, air attacks. Now, in the middle of all of this, Macron, uh, who I think, well, let me just reserve judgment for a few minutes at least. Uh, has basically said this week, at the beginning of the week, that uh, putting Rush, uh, French or perhaps European or perhaps NATO boots on the ground in Ukraine is not beyond question. Uh, and of course, this produced uh, a strong reaction from Russia, uh, which said that that would mean war, uh, likely against NATO. Um, and, of course, this also galvanized the European political landscape. Uh, the Germans were very quick to point out that there was uh, no consensus on this matter at all, that this was Macron just talking. And this is kind of um, a big deal in my mind, uh, not because of the Russian bravado, which you know we have seen in other, in other occasions when the West was uh, willing to and then send in 
a modern weaponry for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Uh, but because it is uh, a very strange wedge to put in the middle of European politics uh, at a time in which the waters are quite turbulent. Uh, so, you know, it does bring some extra political tension uh, and it offers people like Orban, who are, you know, sitting on the fence forever now, uh, the possibility essentially of, of you know, um, finding some what probably are reluctant allies uh, politically. What what are your thoughts, Bill? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts when it comes to this bizarre, very hasty um you know, re effort to re-energize support for Ukraine, not only Macron's statement itself, but this everything surrounding it. Remember, this came out of a meeting in Paris on Monday that Macron and his people very quickly put together, um, kind of coming out of the Munich Security Conference that most people describe as gloomy and doomy, gloom and doom, um, just to try to, like, get people back on message, get people back, you know, to that 2022 fervor of supporting Ukraine against Russia. Uh, and... A friend of the show, Andrew Redman, uh, who we had on recently with the EU Observer, he has an article uh, today uh, talking to people, basically saying Macron was just kind of thinking out loud. It really didn't mean anything. He was just trying to say stuff that sounded good. Remember, Macron and France, major military power at the European level, has actually done very little relative to the size of its co economy and the size of its military industrial complex, relatively little for Ukraine. This is something that Germany often points out. Now, France hits back and says it's it's quality over quantity. Yes, we haven't given as much money or equipment as the Germans have or many other countries have, including much smaller countries. But what we've given is very high quality and very effective and exactly what uh, the Ukrainians need, while the Germans are still dithering on Taurus cruise missiles, for example, just as they dithered on Leopard tanks. And fighter jets are, of course, uh, out of the were out of the question for, from, from the German perspective. So... This idea of troops on the ground, I really don't, I just don't see how that happens, right? The French, are the French really going to put French troops into Ukraine? It sounded like this, a kind of a, a marketing effort to show that France is still there. France is still on Ukraine's side. I think that what you're seeing is Macron really taking open aim at the Germans. I mean, one of the things he said is making fun of the German position at the beginning of the war was, well, the Germans were offering sleeping bags and helmets and that position changed. What I find a bit unsettling about what was said is that, in fact, he points to a change uh, in the Russian position in relation to uh, not only to Ukraine, but uh, to Thames in general. Um, at a time in which I, I want to remind you, I mean, there were a lot of heads of uh, defense uh, in different countries, including Sweden, including the UK, uh, that not too long ago were not only talking about you know, preparedness for a potential war with Russia, but in countries like the UK, there was sort of distant rumors of, of enlistment. Uh, so I think that in a sense, it's true that this seems flippant and, uh, you know, it's hard to say exactly how this would work out, uh, not to mention the fact that it does what I think politically would is, is completely inconvenient, which is, as I said, separate the waters, but it does echo something that has been uh, said in other parts of the region. Uh, which is that th there is sort of a, a gesture towards an increased risk um, of confrontation with Russia uh, if Ukraine is allowed to fall. So, yeah, it should be clear that NATO officials immediately squashed, quashed uh, that idea of troops ever being in Ukraine as part of any kind of settlement or whatever next step in the war. 
the other big thing to come out of that meeting from the French perspective is signing, appearing to sign up to this particularly Cheshire idea of we don't have in Europe the production capacity to meet the goals we've made on the ammunition. Let's just buy the ammunition, much like we did the COVID vaccines, from out there on the market around the world. And this has been a long simmering debate. Uh, we, we know that the EU promised a million 155 millimeter shells to Ukraine by March. It looks like they're only on track to be able to give half of that. Part of the reason is because the e they want to, quote, buy European, um, you know, which is good for the economies and the industries of European countries. And then within that, you have European countries competing with themselves. But the EU doesn't have the capacity to make to to to, to do what the North Koreans can do and provide that amount of weaponry. So there's been this long summering debate. We have the money. Let's just buy it. And the French in particular, not only the French, but the French in particular have been against that because they want to uh, write a check to their own uh, military industrial base. But now it looks like France and Macron might be breaking in favor of let's just buy the shells and get those million shells over to Ukraine and deal with the production base later. Um. So there's a lot of instability, shall we say, in European politics. That doesn't look like it's going to be changing. Nonetheless, it's not discouraging some people from wanting to jump into the fray. Uh, and that's why I was able to talk with Karin Derigo. She is the would-be Spitzenkandidat. That is the lead candidate of a party for European elections. If her party, Mira 25, is able to get enough signatures in Germany to run uh, on the ballot in European elections. That is where I caught up with her just last night, where they were at a cafe in the Berlin district of Neukölln, where German citizens or European citizens were able to sign up for basically being able to get the party onto the ballot. So Merge 25 is a pretty curious machine, isn't it? I mean, this is uh, a German operation related to the Varoufakis uh, broader European operation, isn't it? I mean, what is it exactly, and why should we care about it, Bill? Right. I was also confused, and I talked to Karin about this, because Mira 25 is uh, basically an outgrowth of what some people might know better as DM 25, which in Greece is an actual political party, but elsewhere in Europe is not a party. It's just a movement, a left-wing movement. And this is a pan-European project. It's in Germany. It's in Italy. It's in Sweden. It's, of course, in Greece. It's in a few other countries. And in Germany, Mira 25 exists as a party at a German level, and this is a, them trying to get onto the European level for European elections. Um, and that's what I talked to Karin about. I think, uh, one, I think one important point of disclosure is that I did sign my name to get them onto the ballot, and that's less out of any ideological preferences than just I think democratic politics need new ideas and democratic politics need grassroots efforts, and that's what this is. And I, I think it's great that uh, regardless of viewpoints or ideology, that people are interested in, in democratic politics and interested in, in not just protesting and taking you to the streets, but actually trying to win at the ballot box. So let's go uh, over to my conversation with Karin. The easiest question first, just tell me who you are, like what you do. What are you? Who are you? What are you? <laughs> what are you? No, um, well, first of all, I'm Italian, I'm 37, turning 38 this year. I've been in Germany for years uh, and uh, I came during the pandemic, so it was also quite tough. Very 
I was living in Switzerland before. I did many jobs, and I like to say that I come from a corporate world because I've always worked for big companies in sales, in marketing, and now I'm a buyer, so I'm in the buying sector, which allowed me to see everything from the point of view of commerce and uh, international ones. So, yeah, I'm not the, the typical academic or, or activist, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, I decided to take this step now because I, I really, at my age, I cannot really stay here and look at what is happening. And uh, yeah, I, I needed to take a stand. So that's why I started then. But when you say uh, you can't stand what's happening anymore, what is what does that mean to you? Yeah, um, I think mostly uh, the injustice and the difference, uh, and then that, yeah, the difference uh, of treatment uh, of the rights uh, that there are in the world uh, and coming more and more near to us because it's not before we could really close our eyes and stay at home and not think about what was happening around the world. Now, problems have arrived here in our uh, neighborhood, basically, and uh, we cannot uh, just turn away and, uh, and not think about it. So it's, a, it's an urgency to need them. I don't want to live in a world like this, and I want, I'm, I'm not even expecting somebody else uh, to do something for me. So I'm used to go hands-on, let's say, <laughs> and, uh, and start trying to be something. If we will manage to better, if not, uh, at least uh, I will have tried. So can you explain to me what's happened? What are we doing here? What's happening? So we are connecting signatures because we are trying to get on the ballot for the election in June. And since we need 4,000 in the whole Germany, we are really trying to gather them everywhere. So we are basically making ourselves available in every spot we can in order for people to find us. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how many people have helped us so far. They're really people that we didn't know, that didn't even know the movement, but they just came and uh, I started help. So I, I, I want to thank them anyway for, for all the help so far. And we have the next 10 days, which are going to be super hard, uh, but uh, we are determined. I am super determined and uh, I will not accept uh, defeat. <laughs> so we will make it. Do you know how many signatures you have so far? Yes, um, although it's not super easy to, to say it officially because I, uh, many are, uh, are on, the, on their way between Valant and other places. So um, we have, let's say, 80%. So in the next two weeks, uh, the rhythm that we're working, we should definitely make it. The problem is that many of them uh, get canceled by the electoral office because of uh, mistakes and stuff like this. So we have to gather more and to be on the safe side, very ready to work a bit more now than uh, to regret it after. Um, how do you define your party position? Is it left? Is it new left? Is it something else? What do you, how do you, how do you see yourself politically or ideologically? Yeah, um, I think our party is the new left, what the, exactly was missing, at least what was missing for me, because um, we are not only uh, nostalgic, let's say, of uh, older styles of politics, but we are really concentrated on, on values which are universal and, uh, and timeless, like solidarity and peace and... Uh, uh, climate protection, and uh, we want just to, to bring them on and, um, yeah, try to offer 
alternatives which are uh, new, which are not uh, just uh, um, yeah, I don't know, a revolution or uh, other, yeah, old way of fighting, although they are also important, I'm not saying uh, it's not, but still we need to uh, to offer real, you know, there are solutions, let's say. Um, we're in a moment where there's politically a massive movement to the right. Yeah. What kind of challenges does that pose to you coming in from the left? Or even the, even the far right has taken votes from the left and taken ideas from the yeah, left. Because we're, the left, uh, and that's exactly the problem, and that's the reason why we are here. The left has uh, given up all the all these values and to, to protect them actively. So what we have to do is to reappropriate ourselves of these values and the language and uh, to create uh, basically a new education, new culture, saying uh, no, it's important to be solidari so in solidarity with the other people and uh, yeah, and try to educate them. Uh, um, sorry, not educate them to yeah, to try to build a new culture of uh, of peace and uh, solidarity. So at least on social media, yeah, like the big push has been Israel Gaza. Yeah. How much do you think that issue can be a winning? Uh, topic to attract voters? Well, we are the only party basically uh, being so loud about it. And since not even the beginning, no, not the, the 7th of October, much before, I mean, the position of DM25 about that was always very clear. And uh, finally, we, ha we are being also rewarded for our sort of staying true to our values, basically, because uh, before it was not such a big an important topic in Europe, obviously, but now that it is, people started to realize, oh, okay, there is someone that really has the freedom to speak out about it uh, without problems because at the end we are uh, independent, totally independent. That's also the positive thing of being uh, funded only by our members. So, yeah, it's it counted a lot and uh, happily we are very confident that we are on the on the right side. But still, I mean, for you to reach a, a broader amount of voters, people are foreign. F things that are happening far away don't don't always seem to be a winning uh, campaign. They might be morally correct, but they might not be politically smart. So what else? How else do you plan on reaching out to to voters? Well, um, for sure, we are pointing on uh, on climate uh, justice because uh, and, and the justice that is not only uh, related to our uh, lifestyle, it has to be a, a social justice in terms of really um, the climate goals can, can only go hand in hand with solidarity goals and social justice. Climate and social are together. So um, I think this is a, a combination that is really fundamental and also for people to understand because there are a lot of climate groups, unfortunately, that are very liberal and even racist, so especially in Germany. Um, so I think it's important that we we, we reaffirm the importance of this, uh, these topics and these uh, values uh, at a broader level. And uh, for the social justice also, we want also to introduce a, a universal basic income. So uh, because we want people really uh, to be independent and it's like a light motive uh, of our campaign also the independency not only um, geopolitically which is a huge part of it obviously but also uh, personally because only if a person can um, can allow itself to 
decide which job to, t- to take and which cons- conditions, then he's really free to realize himself or herself. And uh, um, that's the basic of democracy because also people now don't take part in politics because they have way too much to do, too many problems to take care of. And if they are not freed from these things, then uh, um, we cannot complain that people are not participating and we don't have democracy. What do you think is the the main reason or the main reasons? What do you see as um, the cause for the collapse of left-wing parties and the rise of the far right in the last, I don't know, five years, ten years um, across Europe? Well, the left has just tried to uh, emulate what the right was doing, basically. Um, for immigration, for example, that, that, that's the most obvious example that we see in every country. Uh, some parts of the left are... are just following, trying to regain back the votes that the left, uh, uh, that, that the right has taken, uh, just coping them. And this is uh, the worst thing that could happen because then uh, we stayed without left and everybody is really suffering for that. And uh, yeah, that, that's why we're here. Right. How do, you, how do you plan to solve this problem that the right has been very good at in creating a zero-sum game, right? Their gain is my loss, my loss is, or my gain is their loss. It's one or the other, especially when it comes to immigration. How do you plan to kind of get around that that, that problem? Well, uh, it is a matter of uh, explaining to people exactly how things are. It is sometimes boring. That's why we have to make it attractive, obviously. And uh, we have to tell the truth also because... Some, the right is very, very good in uh, hiding things, so um, we have to call them out, uh, especially about immigrants and uh, uh, availability of money for the social state, because this is just, uh, is, there are a lot of lies going on about that, and there is money, there are a lot of money, there, the richest people are becoming more and more rich, and uh, uh, we need to redistribute it. That's the, the only way to do it. For the rest, there is space for everybody, obviously. And last question, because we are outside and you're very kind to be out here without a coat on. Um, you're Italian. Why are you running for politics at a European level, but in Germany and for the German side of a, of a political party? It is, yeah, funny if I think about it. I would have never thought that I would have done something like this in my life, but uh, um, I am proud of doing it because I feel I am a European first of all I don't feel necessary I'm only Italian I am not only German obviously and um, I think this is a perfect combination for a person especially in our European Union to represent different perspectives and different sides of the of the story let's say all right let's go back inside to the music thank you thank you so much So many thanks to Karin for giving me some of her time, explaining some of her views. And in case our listeners were confused at all, hearing two different sounds there, we did half of the interview inside the cafe, and then a really lovely uh, a Greek folk band was about to start playing. So we popped outside for the second half of the interview. So looking ahead, uh, or looking at the week ahead, um, what stories are you going to be tracking? 
Oh, I'm enjoying the the bubbling up controversy of the Eurovision Song Contest in Israel, uh, Israel's song for this year that they're submitting. Apparently, although we don't know it yet because it's not officially released, apparently is highly political. Uh, it's called October Rain. I think that's all I need to say about that. Uh, and of course, uh, this has nothing unique to Israel. Uh, the Eurovision Song Contest is officially non-political. Yeah, right. Uh, and if it's too political, the song Israel could that song could be could be um, rejected, and Israel is threatening that if the song is rejected, they will not participate in Eurovision this year. So for Europeans out there, that's a big deal because of course Eurovision is like the Super Bowl meets the Oscars for a lot of people here. That so that's kind of what I've been been looking at you. So I mean, for me, it's really just uh, more Germany, more France. Uh, I'm just very curious as to um, how much this new confrontation between Macron and Scholz, sort uh, of now extending to you know boots on the ground, but also weapons to Ukraine, weapons production. So what does it turn into uh, in the week ahead? Um, so it's quite clear that. Uh, both sides are essentially walking uh, a tightrope in the middle of an election year. Uh, for Macron, it's mainly the European elections, where we hear that the Le Pen operation, the Rassemblement National, will probably do very, very well, uh, which means that it will work essentially as a confidence vote or lack of confidence vote uh, on Macron's government, which looks at this point in a very weak position. And then Scholz, who has, uh, I think, a government in constant in constant crisis uh, and a waffling, uh, ongoing two years of waffling positions concerning uh, the Ukraine, the Ukraine war. So in a way, this is interesting because of Russia and because of the situation on the ground, but it's also interesting because of the impact that it could have on a broadly construed uh, central, central European political alignment. And that's it for this week's Euroscopic. We hope you enjoyed it, and we thank you for being with us. Written by us, produced by us, and edited by Martin. You can catch us every week, either at our Substack or on euobserver.com. We'd love to hear from you, so be sure to subscribe and share your thoughts. Many thanks again to Mikhail Komin and Karin Rigo for joining us on this week's episode. Till next time, I'm William Glucroft. I'm Martin Guck. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.